Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. Today, my guest is Dr. Katherine Menjerink, both a trained environmental lawyer and marine biologist. Her particular set of skills has made her a great champion of the ocean. She spent 10 years running the Environmental Law Institute's ocean program, and today is the executive director of the Waite Institute here in California, where she's focused on developing and implementing blue prosperity programs. Thank you so much, Katherine, for coming to chat with me. Thanks, JJ. It's great to be here. I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. So much of it is on the cutting edge. But before we dive into any of that, I just want to get a couple minutes on you and what got you interested in the ocean and the work that you're doing. Yes, thanks. Well, it's really my brother. My older brother had this fabulous goal of becoming like the next Jacques Cousteau. And like a good younger sister, I decided to like follow his path, except he rerouted and, and picked a different career altogether. And I ended up moving into the world of, of marine biology. And um, I started off doing marine biology research and thought that I was going to be a scientist. And then I spent a lot of time in a lab and realized that that was not where I wanted to land, but instead wanted to use my scientific knowledge to try to drive change, uh, recognizing that our oceans are in a really desperate state of needing protection for the long-term sustainability of our planet. So I shifted gears and became a lawyer and have spent my time since then really thinking about how to support better decision-making about the ocean and how to drive action that leads to real change. I love it. So now you run the Weight Institute. And one of the things, your website is really good and has so many great tidbits, but one line on there that I just loved was, our coalition was founded around one unifying belief. We can protect the environment and the economy at the same time. The environment is the economy. It's the basis for all life and everything we do. And that really, that's our ethos here at New Atlantis as well. I'm wondering, how much you've had to explain that to people, that the environment, the ocean, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so, right. So people want to say it's like, it's like an us versus them. It's the environment or the economy. And what we recognize is, and, and I think globally, there's like a movement now that recognizes that, no, that we can build sustainable systems. We can design new models of utilization that, function with a thriving ocean and ocean um, ocean health, as well as you know, the broader environment, right? Because we know that the global planet, like the, the health of our planet really depends on the health of the ocean as well. So I feel like there's a trend and there's a shift and, and certainly our younger generation, the millennials, like they get it. They see a future, not just like, hey, we need to protect the planet because it's a good thing, but hey, there's money to be made here, that there's an opportunity for us to earn a great living by having a healthy ecosystem and driving them. And you've had so many success stories at the Wade Institute. I want to start with the Maldives, what you've done there. Oh, yeah, sure. And I, I might just take a quick step backwards and say, 
that, you know, one of the core ways that we work is we work in partnership with governments. So we're working with island governments all over the world to support their management of their oceans. So in the Maldives, we're partnering with the government. The program is called New Raje, which means Blue Maldives. And we have a team of amazing people who are working in the Maldives to support a new vision for what their ocean should look like in the future. You know, if you know about the Maldives, it's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's a massive, massive area of ocean and filled with over a thousand small islands make up uh, the Maldives. So we actually, as part of our program to support management and decision-making, undertook an ocean use survey. And what that means is that we sent a team of Maldivians out into the field to visit every single island that is populated in the Maldives, which is uh, well over a hundred islands. And they interviewed people about how they use the ocean and how they value the ocean. And that's talking to fishermen about where do you fish? But it's not just about like where you fish. It's also about well, how do you value the places that you fish? So over here, maybe you fish on Tuesdays because it's really good. But really, if you're going to pick the place that's super important, it's over in this other place that is like where the bulk of your value comes from the fishing activities. So we did that for all kinds of stakeholders. Um, that was, you know, fishers, tourism operators, people involved in transportation, people doing like surfing, recreation. And what we came up with was a massive map with huge, crazy shapes of how people use the ocean because they wrote on a computer like where they're actually doing their activity. So now we can look at this massive data set. In the end, we interviewed or the, the survey represents over 26,000 people. So it's huge. Wow. Enormous. And it's, it's really a testament to our Maldivian team for the incredible effort that they undertook. And all of that information has been compiled into a system called C-Sketch. And that system allows government and communities to take a look at how are people using the ocean? How are they valuing it? And then you can use that to make decisions like, hey, we're going to put a protected area here because that's where people want to go diving and people want to go kayaking. But over in this other place, this is a really important fishing ground. We're not going to take that away from fishers because they depend upon it for their livelihood. So you can make those decisions or make those trade-offs because we have this massive data set. So in that way, that's how we really utilize one example of how we're utilizing human use data to help inform the decisions. And have decisions been made because of the data that you gathered in the Maldives? So it's a, it's a pretty big process. And we are currently working with our government body that represents several different ministries. Um, and they're evaluating how to design a marine protected area system utilizing this information. So the final maps have not been drawn yet. It's really at the stage now of government looking, evaluating, analyzing, and then moving forward with that information about the process. In all, this kind of work takes years. Mm -hmm. uh, we want it to go quickly, of course, but we also understand that the best way to make good decisions is in a participatory process. And that means really engaging with communities and stakeholders to work with them to design solutions. Uh, and it just, it takes a lot. So currently, uh, I think hopefully in the next year that we'll have the final uh, version of the uh, Marine Protected Area System in place, as well as more broadly on um, marine spatial planning, which is essentially 
not just about marine protection, but also identifying areas for other types of human use. So back to this like environment and economy, Mm -hmm. um, we also want to understand, hey, where are the best places to do aquaculture? Uh, Where are the best places if you're going to site like offshore wind? So as we look to other types of sustainable activities, utilizing this kind of information also to design management systems that allow different and new uses potentially. And that's really what you're, I mean, amongst many other things, but what the Weight Institute really is an expert in is marine spatial planning. Absolutely. Yep. We spend most of our time, energy, and effort focused on, on that. How many kinds of data are layered into that work? It can be enormous. So basically we take all the available data that we can get our hands on mm-hmm. that that's spatial. So we take information like if there's sea surface temperature information, we can include that. We can include information about like if there's information about coastal sea level rise, storm surge, those kinds of things, but also information about different types of habitat. So in a place like back to the Maldives, you've got coral reef habitat, you've got seagrass beds, you've got sandy bottom, you've got really deep ocean. And so we take all that information as well, and you can just stack the layers up. What becomes important is what you do with that information, Mm -hmm. right? How do you use it? So the second step of that also is to start to identify, well, what are the goals and the priorities? So an example of a priority might be, well, we want to protect 30% of all the ocean in this place but we want it to be representative. So we don't want to just protect a random 30%. We want that 30% to represent all the different types of biodiversity that we have. So if we took like a California example, right? If you took a terrestrial example, you'd want to protect some beaches. You'd want to protect some coastal scrub. You'd want to go out into the desert and protect part of the desert if you're really trying to create a network of functional protection. And back to the other thing, back to the economy, on the other side of it, there's going to be economic priorities that we can also look to. And so we may be helping governments make a decision about wind because, hey, this is where the wind is blowing the best. Here's the least impact to biodiversity. Here's you know how far away from land you want it to be so you don't impact people's viewscapes, so on and so forth. How do you know when to stop, right? You could be collecting data forever to make these decisions, but at some point you just have to put a stake in the ground and say, here, we're going to do the best we can. Yes. And that's a really important issue, right? Because science often becomes an excuse for inaction, Mm -hmm. right? Well, we don't have enough data. We don't have enough data. We can't act. So we take all the available data. Sometimes we collect a little bit more than available data. Um, We work with our partners and governments who manage oceans, right, to, to help them identify their priorities but we're also asking them to make a decision. And that's when it gets hard, right? Because then it's like, oh, we don't have enough science to make a decision. Um, What we like to talk about is be adaptive, right? Make the decision now, but then also recognize like five years from now, you're gonna have more information and you may need to tweak the system. So done right, if you design it in the right way, you're gonna tweak it in the future. It's not constant, but you do need to make the decision. And it's easy to not make a decision, right? Because, you know, decisions are hard and people... There's trade-offs to be made and some people will be upset. So um, it really takes strong leadership, I guess, is is another thing. Outside of the realm of science, um, it really takes strong leaders to act. Well, you've been doing this for quite a while now, been in this world. Do you see the tide changing? Are people making decisions faster? Is it easier to make decisions around protecting the ocean? That's a good question. I think that there's a lot of ambition 
And we've seen it across the board, right? And then think with the most recent um, decision during the center or the Convention on Biological Diversities, COP, their, their conference of the parties, there was a commitment, a global commitment to protect 30% of the ocean. You know, those are, and there's a lot of countries who've individually stood up and their leaders have stood up and said, we're going to protect not just 30% of the world's ocean, we're going to protect at least 30% of our own waters. Mm -hmm. So those commitments are being made, but the follow through is hard, right? And there are some countries who are doing it and have done it, but following through on that is very difficult. And the other, the, the challenge that we face is not only that it's difficult to make those decisions during a single political life cycle, right? So politicians come and go, administrations change. And when those changes happen, getting the next government to pick up where the previous government left off and carry it forward is one of the big sticking points. So I think that there's, there's definitely a global recognition that the problem is enormous, that we need to have large-scale marine protection, that we need to shift our economy towards blue and green economies, and that that we can do it. And so now it's like the details of doing it. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to help those governments who are leading. So it's important for us also to work with governments where this is their vision. It's not just us saying, hey, you guys should do this because it's a good idea. We work with governments who are like, hey, we want to do this. Can you give us a hand? Is there some technical support you can provide so that we can get this done? Who is a shining example? that you've worked with, that you just think, oh, if the whole world were just like these people. Is there one? <laughs> you can say there are many, by the way, because if you leave someone out who's one of your clients, Exactly. Right? <laughs> I would say, yes. So we work in eight different uh, countries and territories, and I would say each brings something special to the table. And all of them are still on their journey. Um, I love and all I my children. <laughs> I do. It is so true. It is so true. I love them all in different ways and for like all the things that they bring. <laughs> <laughs> my dad used to say, you are my favorite youngest child. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I have a daughter and I tell her she's my favorite daughter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then let's get into to another example that you have because You'd mentioned this in talking about the Maldives, but you do expeditions where you collect data, mm-hmm. where you collect science, marine science as well. And I think one yes. of them you're doing that in was is Fiji. Yeah, in fact, right now we have um, a ship in Fiji that's undertaking what we think is going to be the largest expedition, coastal expedition ever completed. Once again, it's a partnership with the government of Fiji. Uh, we're working with the Ministry of Fisheries as our co-lead as well as other international scientists. And we have a team of scientists who are on board. The first leg was three weeks. And I think they visited over 90 dive sites in that period of time. And what we do in this situation, we do coastal surveys for the most part. So we're looking at what is the status of the coral? One of the questions we ask is like, how many baby coral are there? Because that tells us, is this an area where there's potential growth? Mm-hmm. Or if the coral is depleted and there's no babies, like that's a, a pretty strong sign that, that there may be a problem. Uh, we also do things like count fish, both in the sense of like, how many are there? How big are they? And then what species are there? And that tells us relative health and function of ecosystems. In and of itself, good information. But what we want to understand in this kind of work is, to get a bit of a baseline of what does it look like and also to be able to ask questions. So we can say, oh, well, this area is really populated. And in areas where we have larger populations, we see more degraded conditions. Mm -hmm. Or this place is really remote and we see much more like thriving 
healthy coral. So the baseline data helps us test different theories about not just understand what the current state of health is, but also understand how the area and the activities in the area may be impacting the health. But the other issue is is the trend line, right? So it's one thing to get a snapshot. The next thing that we, we try to do is, as the process moves forward, not to ever, we probably won't ever come back and do this scale of assessment again, but we can revisit some of the sites in the future. So two or three years down the road, go back to those places and see, are you seeing, what's the trend line? Are we seeing a positive change? Are we seeing a negative change? Once the government makes decisions about how to utilize space, do you see a trend up or down? And one of the cool tools that we use, we're working with um, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, a group called 100 Island Challenge that's led by Dr. Stuart Sandin. They undertake something that's called photo mosaics. And the photo mosaics are these 10 meter by 10 meter plots where they take thousands of images. So the diver literally like swims back and forth over this like 10 by 10 meter plot. And it's sort of like mowing the lawn. They just go back and forth and snap picture, 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 picture. And then they have computer software that takes all those images and stitches them together. And they use that to build a three-dimensional model. Mm. And they can look down to like the millimeter scale of like a single coral poly, like right, or it's single coral species, right? Like they're looking at very, very small scale of the, of the corals or of what the bottom looks like, but they can also look kind of in three dimensions to see, okay, what is, do you have really big bouldering corals? Do you have a really flat reef? And then they can look at how that changes over time. So the idea is they put permanent GPS positions and they also tend to put stakes into the reef so they can go back to that exact same spot and look at how it's changed over time. And so that kind of information is really important so that we can say, hey, corals can recover. Mm -hmm. And we see that, especially in places where you have more resilient systems, right? Healthier systems tend to be more resilient and you tend to get coral recovery more often than you would in a system that's more degraded or has more human uses or activities that are impacting it. If you could wave a magic wand and say there's one piece of data, whether it's possible to get right now or not, science and technology changes so quickly, what would it be? I'd want to know where all fishing vessels are at all times. Wow. Well, that's very doable. I mean, so it's it sort is. of technically doable. It's doable to get there. So large scale fishing, we can already track. Mm -hmm. And there's great information out there about tracking, like for the big ships that have automatic identification systems or vessel monitoring systems, they're pinging satellites and sharing their location. We can even do what is called like dark targets and identify fishing vessels of a certain size that are out on the ocean using other types of satellite imagery. And we can even like at a a much more expensive way, direct satellites to do smaller scale evaluation of who's out on the water. But for a lot of coastal areas, there's a lot of small scale fishers that we have no, aside from self-reporting, or if they have some type of what's often called IVMS, a smaller scale vessel monitoring system in place, we're not often tracking those vessels. And there still is challenges in the sense of like these large scale illegal operators that are out on the ocean, sort of still treating it like the Wild West and undertaking illegal fishing. So I think that in a decade, we're going to be there where we're going to know a whole, whole, whole lot more about who's doing what. And 
And I know that there's like this sense of like freedom of the seas and like this, once again, this Wild West mentality where it's like not okay for people to know where ships are on the water. You think about a car. We know where all the cars are. You know, we can track um, where cars are on land. Why shouldn't we be doing the same in the ocean? And it's, I think it's just a shifting sense of like, it's not the Wild West. It should be a regulated environment because we're utilizing it at such a high capacity we're going to use it up if we don't actually take action to manage it. That that is not the answer I thought you were going to give me, right? I thought <laughs> I thought we were about to go deep into the science, something but that but it's so interesting because in essence what I think you are saying is the biggest problem we have is human use of the ocean, right? And, and of course it is part of our world and it's not like humans are going to stop using the ocean. We can live together. Yeah the ecosystems in the ocean and human beings. But it sounds to me that you're saying that's the problem. Like bar none, that is the problem. So I would I would make it, it's like a two-part problem. One, it is human use. But one of the biggest challenge that I think we have is that we need decision makers who will make decisions mm. and make hard decisions, right? We need real leadership. And we can look at this in the climate change world. We can look at this in the ocean realm. We can look at this in terms of biodiversity it's so much easier to make a decision that says like, hey, we're going to expand the economy in this sector. It's good for votes, makes people happy, but your children are going to pay for it. We don't say that part, right? But we are saying right. we're doing that, right? Like we're making decisions now that if we don't shift how we're making decisions, we're taking from our children. We're taking from our grandchildren, but politicians operate on four-year life cycles. So I think it's a a decision maker problem, but how do we help decision makers make the right decision? Part of that is sharing information and being able to say, no, look, you don't have one vessel on the ocean that's occasionally fishing. You've got thousands out there who are depleting the resource. So we have to have the science that says how we're impacting our environment. And then we have to have the decision makers to make hard decisions. Is there, We're willing to yeah, leadership. Yeah. Is there one message that you find works the best, right? It's either, hey, fisheries are getting depleted. And so we need to work on this so that you can have a thriving fishing industry or a thriving tourism industry, you know, or is it the health of human beings message? Or is it the environment message? Or is there something that works the best for you? I think that the thing that, so one, there's a, a ton of really well-intentioned leaders and stakeholders and even fishers who are like, hey, we're willing to comply as long as the system's managed and we're mm -hmm. not losing out like over somebody else who's cheating. So that's another issue. But I think that the thing that's being asked most frequently is what is this going to cost, mm -hmm. right? Governments are concerned about, and in, in, in two ways, one, what is it going to cost us, the government in terms of revenue to manage the system? And then the other thing, and that's manage the system as a whole, not just like, you know, one area, but right. how do we manage our fisheries that are, you know, we're, we're an island nation that has a very small population, maybe 100,000 people, but we're managing an area that's the size of India, right? Like, how do we do that? How do we pay for the cost of that management? So that's one of the big issues that governments are wrestling with is how to accomplish that. And then they're also trying to understand how to address the impact to pretty typically the fishing industry. There are other stakeholders who are who can be affected by these kinds of management decisions. But one of the biggest challenges because of the amount of fishing that happens in the ocean is regulating the fishing industry. And so, but fishers are trying to make a living, right? Like mm -hmm. they're trying to feed their families. And 
many fishers, most fishers are small scale. In a lot of the places that we work in island nations, fishers may be, you know, subsistence fishers. So they really need to bring in food for their family or they're small artisanal fishers who need that economic resource so that they can pay for their own cost of living. And then you've got the large scale guys out there as well, guys and gals. And so then the question becomes, how do we deal with that? How do, if we're taking something away, if we're restricting fishing, how do we address that? So that's another big question that governments are trying to grapple with. Or are we impacting them? Like maybe we're designing systems that help build fisheries aren't impacting them. Okay, let's talk about Tonga as the last example of some place that you've worked where you've seen great improvements. Yeah, so Tonga is an amazing place. So we've been working in Tonga since 2017 and working in partnership with the government. And there's a local organization that's called the Vava'u Environmental Protection Association or VIPA. And the partnership has focused on broadly on marine spatial planning, uh, but we also work at a much smaller scale on community-based fisheries. And so at these two scales, we've been operating for several years, but science has also played a major role in this. So we've actually supported three expeditions in Tonga, one in the first one in 2014, again in 2017, and then most recently in 2022, <laughs> years are going by. And that's important for this story I want to tell you, because as you may recall, and the world probably recalls, the largest volcanic mm. explosion that was ever recorded happened in Tonga in January of 2022. So that explosion created a tsunami that had local impact. So in addition to the explosion itself with ash and ash settling onto the ocean, there was also a tsunami that had a major impact underwater. So we sent a team in to survey what was the before and after. So what was the system before? And thankfully, we've been doing this work for a while, right? So this is the value also of monitoring over time. Uh, we have the before data. Now we have the after data. Now, of course, it was nine months later, but we're able to see back to those photo mosaics. We went back to those same plots. And in some places, it did okay. Some places did okay because it was buffered. It was, you know, where the ash cloud went, so on and so forth. Didn't have much of an impact. In other places, there was incredible devastation and impact to the reef environment. That's great. As divers in the water, we can do so much. But we, we also want to use a satellite information. So we partnered with uh, the University of Queensland. And actually, this work is just starting now and is going to be taking place over the next year with Dr. Chris Rolfsema, who is a scientist at the University of Queensland. Um, he's partnering with us and with the government of Tonga to use satellite information to be able to conduct environmental assessment, the assessment of the coral reef. So as you can imagine, you can only see so far into the ocean. So this is in pretty shallow water environments that we can take satellite data and we can look at satellite data before the eruption and then satellite data after the eruption and evaluate how coral reef systems have changed. Hmm. Now, one of the things that they're doing is they're teaching the computers, right, about how to identify coral versus uh, mangroves versus so on and so forth different types of habitat. So that's where the divers come back into play. So we can go back in the water and take a look and say, this is a coral. We know this because we just did the ground truthing survey. This over here is a seagrass bed. 
so that they can train the computers to do these assessments. So it's another area that's important for development. So far, the technology allows us to understand large-scale change. So this is dramatic change in this case. Uh, But you could imagine in a lot of places in the world, you've got hurricanes, Mm -hmm. cyclones that are causing similar types of damage. So those kinds of damage or other tsunamis, you can look at that large scale change before and after. So that to me, I think is another point of technology that's really important about how we can look at large scale change. And what I would imagine is as we move through time, they're going to be able to see smaller and smaller scale changes as we get better with satellites better with computation, you'll be able to look at much smaller scale impacts and change. I'm wondering, and it might be too soon to tell because it wasn't that long ago, but if you went back and looked at your original studies of the ocean in that area and found pockets of high biodiversity and then pockets of less biodiversity that were both equally affected by the eruption, if you see that the former pockets are coming back to where it was a little bit faster. Yeah. And certainly in this case, too early to tell. Mm -hmm. We want like a couple more data points, I'm sure. But that really is where we want to go, right? With this kind of monitoring and information is is being able to look at and test the theories that more more healthy systems are more resilient, that they bounce back faster. And people have been doing this kind of research, like in coral bleaching, where they see, um, you know, where, where there's been a bleaching event, the healthier systems have a tendency to bounce back faster or more frequently than systems that are more degraded. So, and that then tells us like, hey, you know, if we can keep these systems intact, we have a better chance of maintaining them. And, you know, at the end of the day, like we love coral, coral are cool, they're beautiful, but they're also the basis of these islands, right? Like the islands are built on old dead coral, right? So it's not just about, once again, it's not just about like liking biodiversity. We certainly like biodiversity. It's about coral reef health. It's about the health of the fisheries, um, but also just the function of the island that exists, right? And that's when we think about like, what's our future? How do we create a sustainable future? Why it's so important to try to create these resilient systems and protect them. Yeah, I really like this. What I love so much about what you're doing is it's not just about protection for protection's sake. There's a direct line in every place of why it's important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's about, I mean, it's about people, right? Like, so I started my career as a scientist, right? And like the, the like super scientist in me would say, Hey, you know, this is a mass extinction event that we're facing on our planet in a hundred million years. The earth's going to look really cool because we'll have gone through this mass extinction. Right. But I don't think humans are going to be around to experience it. So what I think is really important is that we're trying to conserve the function of the planet Mm. so that people can continue to thrive on it. I also personally think that, you know, I, I want more than just people on the planet. I want to exist in this amazing place of biodiversity, and I want that to be the future of the planet. Right. Well, for the sake it. of biodiversity, for its intrinsic value, but I'm also a people person and, and want to protect it for my kids. How much do you use your law degree these days? How much does it come into play with your work? We do quite a bit of legal work. Mm-hmm. So um, not so much me directly, although because I'm overseeing our team. Right. Um, but we have lawyers on our team. And so we one of the things that we do, we don't want to just create plans or do science. We want decision making mm-hmm. and we want to change how we're managing ocean systems. And that typically requires some sort of legal change. So 
on one level, it could be just regulatory change, tweaking regulations so that you have a better managed system. Or in other instances, we are involved in creating new legal frameworks that allow for marine spatial planning, allow for marine protected area systems to be in place. And once again, when I say we, it's not just us at the Institute, but it's us and all of our partners. And and when you get into the world of legal drafting, that's very closely touches government. It's working with attorney general's offices and solicitor generals to design the right legal frameworks that are needed. Right. And then also to use the existing ones, right? We often we can build off of existing systems because you have all, all the bits and pieces. Right. But it goes back to what you're saying. It's all about decision making. You'll provide them, you'll provide people with here's the information. Now how do we act on it? Yeah, that's the goal, right? Are you, and this will be my last question for you, but are you optimistic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an optimist. I mean just by just by nature. Um I am very hopeful. I'm in for a couple of reasons. One, as I said, like we're starting to, there's like a, I think a groundswell and a a recognition that we have to change our behavior. But I also think this really links to the economy. We're starting to change, you know, where the economic value comes from. So, you know, shifting from an extractive model to something that is like taking advantage of some, an existing system is one thing to think about. I also think that our youth are really, changing how we think about things. So I'm really hopeful when I look at young people, both really young, but also people in like their 20s and 30s who see the world in a different way. And they see the need for change and are really champions of that change. Like, I think that that is going to turn the tide. And hopefully, I just saw something about there's more millennials voting, like people should vote, right? Decision makers, politicians make decisions based on what their constituents are telling them, right? So we also need that piece of it. It's, you know, good leadership, but also constituents and young people who are willing to vote to say, hey, we demand this change. Right. And we care. Well, you're doing a lot of work on that. So thank you. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me because, again, I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. It's amazing. It's all over the world. We only got to touch on three of the examples, but you have many. So thank you. Thank you for talking to me and thank you for all the work you do. Thanks, JJ. It's been great. everyone so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our new Atlantis Labs conversation on Discord. Or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on Good Pods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.